Hey, good morning, hello, and welcome back to the show. The most excellent show, of course. But you are listening to the history of religions and their gods. And I am your host, the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and their origins. So today is February 23rd, 2021, and this is Season 1, Episode 14. And this episode is simply entitled, The Demon Kings. <laughs> so it sounds pretty fun, right? So in this episode, we're going to start with a discussion about the Tower of Babylon, or the Tower of Babel, that was a narrative told in the book of Genesis. And then we're going to move a little bit to um, the 3rd century, somewhere right around 333, 336 BCE, and talk about Alexander the Great, the Demon King, as well as Antiochus the Mad, making our way from the 3rd century to the 1st century of before the Common Era. So thank you for listening, and please share with a friend if you think that they would enjoy the show as well. And spread the love! And if you give me 40 minutes, I will give you the world and so much more. So if you're ready, let's go! So let's talk about the Tower of Babylon, or the Tower of Babel, as told in Genesis. So as I try to date stories that are told in the Bible, I think we can kind of get a good idea by the things that are mentioned, such as the Tower of Babel, as told in the book of Genesis, which is the first book with its creation narrative. But did the Tower of Babylon actually exist, or is it just more allegory to something else? And those are the, always the clues that we need to search for. What is the allegory truly trying to tell us? Because especially in these times when these books are being written, you have to remember that um, allegory and speaking in parables was very popular in writing at the time. So we just know that for a fact. So a lot of things that are written about one thing that some apologist might take as being absolute, well, that's what they meant, that's what they said, it actually means a little bit something different. So let's just talk about this thing. So the construction of the Tower of Babylon, which is also known sometimes in English as the Tower of Babel, is described in the book of Genesis in um, 11 and verses 1 through 9. And actually, I'm going to read the, um, the passage it's a, that's in question here. And I'm going to use my Lord voice again, if that's okay. <clears throat> Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and they migrated from the east. They came up upon a plain in the land of Shinar, which is actually uh, Mesopotamia. Okay. And they settled there. And this would be the Babylonians that they're talking about. Okay. We've talked about the Babylonians before. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. And they burned them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which Mortar had built, and the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel. Now, that Babel is actually, again, a little ruse for Babylon. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. End quote. Now, just so we're on the same page, um, Shinar in, is the biblical name for Mesopotamia, and Babel is just an archaic name um, for the city of Babylon. So the Hebrew name that is used here is exactly the same one that is used to refer to Babylon everywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. But nonetheless, modern biblical translators like to translate it as Babel in the context of the Tower of Babel, because it sounds like the English word Babel, meaning to speak incoherently. And this basically preserves the sense of pun, if you would, that, that is made here in the original Hebrew. So obviously this is just another, you know, mythological tale with heavy allegorical meaning behind it. As, you know, as there are already, we know, several, you know, multitude of different languages being spoken well, you know, 4,000 years prior to, you know, the writing of this particular verse, um, you know, from the ancient Phoenician Canaanite language spoken in the Levant, which is actually the oldest alphabet and the oldest language um, and predecessor to that of the Latin alphabet, if you would. So there were Proto-Bantu languages being spoken parts of Central and West Africa that started the Bantu experience you know, expansion and many more that extended into Asia. And that doesn't even take into account the languages that were being spoken in the Americas, you know, that these writers were completely ignorant about. And this is going back, you know, some 2,500 years before this um, verse in Genesis is ever recorded. So, in fact, even most modern historians regard this account from the book of Genesis as pure legend and not as a true historical account. Again, you have to dig in deep and look and see what the true allegorical meaning was that this particular author was trying to tell his readers. So modern historians do not generally, you know, regard the Tower of Babylon as a real monument that actually existed. Um, you know, it's not it's not true. That being said, the story of the Tower of Babylon may have been inspired by the fact that the people in ancient Mesopotamia really did build towering structures known as ziggurats, which um, you need to pull up the picture. Please go to your Google and plug in ziggurats. It's Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T-S. And there are these ginormous structures, almost like pyramid-looking structured cities that did ascend, kind of, you know, heading on up into the heavens, if you would. And we know that the Babylon, you know, the Babylonians were, they were, the Babylonian kings were every, everything during this time. And, um, and these ziggurats were also used as dedicated temples to the gods, you know, more than likely um, the, the god Marduk, if, you know, if you would. So one of the largest and best preserved surviving um, ziggurats is um, the one of uh, the city of Ur, um, U-R, which was originally constructed by the Neo-Sumerian king Ur-Namu, who ruled right around uh, 2112 uh, to around 2095 before the Common Era. And it's located in what is now called um, Dakar. 
um, which is basically it's a, a city in Iraq today. But the ziggurat has been reconstructed several times over the course of history, and you know, first by the Babylonian king Nabonidus, who we talked about previously, who ruled between 556 and 539 BCE. But um, yeah, I'm looking at the picture right now. You definitely got to pull this thing up. The um, ziggurat of Ur. It is so amazingly cool. So to be clear, this building is definitely not the Tower of Babel, since as far as anyone can tell, you know, the Tower of Babel is just a fictional narrative. But nevertheless, you know, it is an example of the kind of building that the author of the story of the Tower of Babel would probably had in mind when describing it. So, you know, again, we've got these writers who's writing this particular passage in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And, you know, they're talking about things, you know, so obviously making a reference to the to the, to the Babylonian, um, you know, obviously they're talking about Nabonidus at the time, but they're referring back to, to you know, for, further further times. And these structures still exist, obviously, obviously they're still here now, but this author, you know, obviously sees these ziggurats and incorporates it in telling a story because these buildings do ascend up into the heavens. And there may have been some that actually were even higher than these. And so it's just kind of an, an interesting, you know, thing trying to figure out what this author was trying to say. But we know, you know, how they felt about the um, Babylon, about, the, excuse me, about the Babylonians um, because of the deportations and the slavery and things of that nature and all underneath the, you know, the god Marduk. So obviously this author is making a connection to um to the to the to the, to the Babylonians to Babylon and to uh you know the uh, these buildings that are sent into heaven. So in ancient times there was a major ziggurat that you know in Babylon you know that we are aware of, and it was known as and I'm gonna butcher what it's called but it's called the Etemenaki. Um, E-T-E-M-E-N-A-N-K-I. And you got to pull up a picture of it and take a look at it. You know, this structure is very pyramid-esque, if you would, but it's more like in different levels as opposed to just being these 45-degree, you know, slants that come up to a point in the sky. But, you know, you can tell, you could tell that it, you know, it's several stories tall with a temple sitting on top with this huge stone staircase ascending up to the top of it. So it's very, very cool. But, you know, archaeologists can tell us more about that and you know you can do a little bit of your own research on it but there's not much left of it to look at but archaeologists can get a pretty good idea of the details but so this is probably more of the reference that this particular um, author of Genesis was referring to and again clearly making that connection between um, you know the Babylonians and the you know the Babylonian conquest over Judea in 587 um, so these writers are they're talking about you know an event that happened 300 years previously um, and obviously at that time these structures all around them still existed so very very interesting just to kind of see the connection that they're trying to make but I think that one you know I think connection we can make or infer from you know, a couple of the verses that one through nine was, um, you know, talking about, you know, that, that they will be scattered. So, you know, after the Persians, you know, after Cyrus did, you know, come in and conquer um, Babylon, you know, obviously its inhabitants, a lot of things happened. You know, obviously they were scattered. Um, they, you know, a lot of things happened to them. And same thing with the, you know, with the, with the Jews, you know, but, you know, some, we talked about that before, some of them did migrate back. A lot of them stayed. 
and the ones that you know did not migrate back started moving north. Um, so that's and so in terms of the language, I think that was just a little bit of um, I think this author trying to add color to his story because we just we'd already talked about the existence of earlier languages. So anyway, pretty interesting. Well, so now we're going to roll into taking control of the temple. So after the Babylonian captivity and the slow return of the Jews to Judah and the taking control of the temple, these are very significant events. There were two significant and powerful Jewish groups, or I actually just call them families, very strong political families, the wealthiest two families that would emerge. One would be called the priestly families, who controlled basically the temple, and then the landowning families who made up of the elders. The Canaanites weren't big enough or strong enough after the occupation of the Babylonians to maintain control of the temple cult and the political infrastructure. I'm sure you can understand that. But by this point, they had simply become the political minority to the Yahweh's cult. So the Yahweh's basically began writing many stories that these, you know, that the stories that communicated the laws after the Cyrus scrolls or after the, you know, the Cyrus decree, excuse me, that communicated these laws and these rules and commands on how to live life as a Jew and how to treat others as Jews as, you know, all written around characters as well as intertwined into fictitious and non-historical events and, and some even intertwined into actual events that are mentioned as such as like the Babylon in captivity, for example, and the condemnation of false gods such as the Babylonian god Marduk and the Canaanite gods El, Baal, and you know that Asherah, they will start to compile their books of laws called simply the Torah, starting with the book of Genesis that details out their creation narrative that shared of stories that were previously surveyed from other cultures and even involves a flood narrative and a boat narrative and, you know, is found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, so told some 2,000 years before. 2,500 years before, these stories would be memorized as part of an ongoing oral tradition for for several centuries that we had talked about, you know, called the Mishnah Law. They will put their stories into papyrus scrolls sometime in the 3rd century BCE, along with many other books detailing semi-historical events to serve as Jewish political propaganda. So one thing that we know for sure is that these two Jewish elder groups were in conflict over many issues, and each had their own ideas on theology. How many gods, believe that or not? politics and the origins of the universe, you know, the cosmos, you know, especially when, because we are talking about, this is right around that turn from the fourth into the fourth into the third, you know, century, and they were consumed with the cosmos. But the Persian promise of autonomy and, you know, it provided a powerful incentive to work together on a single set of laws for the city-states. And this is where we begin with the creation myth of both Judaism and later adopted and piggybacked, if you would, by Christianity. But the narrative is made up of two stories told by two groups. We have the Yahwist and the Elohist. We kind of kicked around a little bit of the uh, Elohim and, you know, the Elohist before. In this first story by the Elohist, Elohim, which is the basic, it's the generic and it's the Phoenician word for gods, plural, as we have always been more than one, you know, up to, uh, you know, at least the third century BCE, who basically creates the heavens and the earth in six days, which is, you know, a typical six-day pagan cycle. We, we know this. Then the rest, you know, we rest on the seventh day. 
And then in the second story we have by the Yahwist cult, God is referred to as Yahweh, who creates man from dust, which is similar to the Sumerian epic with Enkidu. Remember, we talked about that some 2,500 years prior. And even places him into a sacred garden. Eve is subsequently created as man's companion, as we talked about Adam and Eve, as in Enkidu Teshamat. And as we read through the creation story, as well as the complete draft of the uh, Pentateuch, we can find many themes borrowed from Mesopotamian mythology, but worked into a story of an all-one powerful God. So these five books of the Pentateuch's purpose was to create a brand new start, a new beginning. It is almost like the declaration of the Yahwist temple. You know, I, I can imagine it, you know, carved into this like big stone, you know, entryway before you go through the big pillars and, you know, go up to the stairs. And it's kind of like the Ten Commandments now. You know what I'm saying? So it's everyone can see it. But it's a complete rush, you know, complete refresh from all things known before the end of the Babylonian captivity. But predated some 4,000 years. No pagan gods, no goddesses, no deities, not even a pre-existing world. You know, Johnny the Neanderthal never existed. It was important for these writers to make a clean cut from all, from all polyistic cultures. And these cultures would be identified in the stories to come as heathenistic and soon would be destroyed by this new god, Yahweh. As they were evil and corrupt, leading Israel astray. We'll see this fresh start, or we'll just call it the starting over narrative. Theme can be taken from the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh 2,500 years earlier, and now seen in the book of Genesis 6, 1 through 17, dated right around that fourth to third transition of the century of BCE. Remember, this was Jewish propaganda and only meant for the Jewish readers. No one else is going to buy it. So when we talk about this uh, propaganda to the Jews that would read this forever, and then even Christians, you know, today into the you know 21st century, um, so I'm going to go ahead and quote this passage from out of Genesis <clears throat> using my, of course, my Lord voice. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and in parentheses Babylonians and the Canaanites, just for starters, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was altogether evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the earth, every man and beast and crawling creature and bird of the air, for I am grieved forever creating them. End quote. So I think the authors of this verse were being very, very clear and concise about the separation from the Canaanites to the Yahweh's cult, while blasting the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians. But more than likely, just from a timing perspective, this was Roman Greco era, but and we'll talk about that a little bit. But these cultures that date back a thousand years before now, suddenly they don't exist after the Yahweh cult, after Yahweh, excuse me, created the heavens and the earth and the cosmos. However, we know that civilizations existed and they thrived for centuries before the creation myth throughout North America and Egypt, Asia, as well as the existence of sapiens for some two million years prior to the cognitive revolution. And the books would contain hundreds of laws and rules for the Jews to follow from there'll be crazy things from what kind of clothes, you know, one should wear to, you know, not masturbating as 
You know, would it be an abomination? You know, all told through stories supposedly told by the Bible's patriarch Moses, you know, as told through God, just like Hammurabi through Enil or Marduk. And we will find that these writers will build characters like like their predecessors did, and then edited them into history, just like the Romulus and the Socrates stories. First, the first man, Adam, will have three sons with Eve. The sons will bear children, and so on and so forth. There will be many layers like an onion, going very deep and creating family trees with hundreds of unique characters, all interacting with real people in history, and many times with dubious backdating, of course. But the first composition of the Torah was completed by the Yahweh source, and the group that started using the name Yahweh in the Torah, or the Pentateuch, then later edited and expanded over the authors, you know, over time, would be called the priestly source, into a version that we currently should have today, if you would. But we can never be sure, as there are just absolutely no originals to look at. You can see that these two sources are definitely mentioned in the creation narrative, the combined narrative is a critique of the Mesopotamian theology of creation and the affirmation of monotheism and the denial of polytheism. So again, let's just talk about that fact that um, we don't have any originals. The, the oldest complete book we have is from the 13th century, the Common Era. Other than that, we have the loose pieces of scrolls that were found in the um, Cromran Caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I think it's very cool that, you know, when we start thinking about this book, you know, from a political propaganda sake, that um, it all kind of makes sense to us now. And I think in the very first commandment, again, you have to remember everything that it's said, it's fighting against something of just the opposite, right? So what is the very first commandment? And then my Lord voice with the quotation, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no gods before me. With thunder and lightning bolts. End quote. <laughs> so I think he's making it loud and clear, you know. And, you know, because you got these two powerful families. You, got, you know, you've got the priestly group and, you know, and, and, you know you've, you've got these very wealthy families that are now, you know, taking control of this temple. They're, they're moving their stuff in. They're riding the rules. And the very first one is, well, they're trying to transition Jews who are polytheistic into their world, underneath their political power, to monotheism. Again, there's a lot of benefits, political benefits to monotheism. So anyway, um, but I would like for the readers just to think about these laws in the Bible. Now, as you go back and think about them, you know, take, take out the, take out the um, you know, take all the magic shit out of it and just think about... What was going on historically at the times? Think more about the present time of these words being put down. Don't don't think about this being written some 1200 BCE. Please don't. We're, we're smarter than that. This is being written around that time of, you know, I'll even, the latest I'll go is like 350 maybe BCE, but that's pushing it. But why were they added to scriptures? What, what, what are the verses that come to your mind that you want to think about? you know, in terms of the world, in Jews, you know, view of the world at the time. So as we, you know, as we, you know, can read forward into the Bible and in working our way up to the, you know, to the first century BCE, you know, the end of the Babylonian captivity, the mere existence of all other gods, they were forbidden and denied. As if the Jewish writers rewrote history altogether and left everything out prior to the existence of Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people. 
So, you know, just to end this particular discussion, um, archaeology and, you know, information that we have that's, you know, extra biblical, we have no evidence of this Yahweh's cult ever existing or any references to Jews or Hebrews and Israel, not until around the mid-3rd century BCE. Remember, we, we, we talked about Herodotus earlier. He confirms this over 100 years of their supposed return from Diaspora. He only mentions Egyptians, Ethiopians, and Syrians, but no talk of a group of Yahwist or Jews managing this new temple under you know new management, new rule of monotheistic government. There's no talk about it. Everything is just status quo. Polytheism, multiple gods. That's what that's ever been. The point is, if there had been this huge movement of monotheism, especially that 4th century BCE, or even 5th century BCE, he would have mentioned it. It would have been important enough to mention, but he does not. You know, I've heard the arguments that maybe the Jews were still scattered and hadn't returned yet. To, and, you know, perhaps Rhodotus just didn't fancy the Jews, or maybe, he, maybe the movement was just too insignificant to even notice. Either way, we don't hear about them until the Macedonian king Alexander the Great, the ruler of Greece, conquered Darius III, the last king of the Achaemenid dynasty of Persia. So we're going to transition and talk a little bit about this Alexander the Great, or the Demon King. And home tight, we're moving on. In 336 BCE, when Philip II of Macedon was assassinated, his son Alexander became the king of Macedonia and the ruler of all Greece. He was only 20 years old and now entrusted with one of the world's largest and most dangerous armies ever to be seen. He was eventually referred to as, with the parentheses over my head or quotations, the Demon King. Alexander the Great was known for his charismatic, ruthless, brilliant, and bloodthirsty nature. His 13-year reign as king of Macedonia changed the course of both European and that of Asian history. The Greek philosopher Aristotle tutored the teenage Alexander during Philip, Philip's second's reign. Scholars have attributed Alexander's diplomatic skills and habits of carrying books with him on his military campaigns to Aristotle's influence, of course. But Alexander, Alexander the Great, took the throne at the age of just 20 years old after his father was assassinated, more than likely by and suspected by uh, the Persians. He quickly harnessed the military forces of the Hellenic League, assembling an army of more than 43,000 infantry and 5,500 cavalry. That's huge! And in 334 BCE, he would lead the Macedonian army across the narrow straits of the Hellenspot, today called the Dardanelles, into northwest Turkey. In one long military campaign that lasted nearly 11 years, he conquered the Persian Empire, making Macedonia the largest and most powerful empire in the world. Alexander's great Macedonian empire spanned from Greece all the way to India. And he eventually he did die of unknown causes in 323 BCE in the ancient city of Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. He was just 32 years old. Alexander the Great had no direct heirs to the Macedonian empire, quickly crumbled quickly after his death. Military generals divided up the Macedonian territory and 
a series of civil wars would break out. So when our boy Alexander, when he launched an invasion on the Persian Empire, where he fought and won many battles, he eventually became the ruler of all of Persia. And during this march through the Persian Empire, he traveled to Egypt, where he founded a new city on the coast and named it none other than, that's right, Alexandria, in case you didn't know. But Judeans there were now underneath Alexander's rule, who was heavily Hellenized. He worshipped many gods, especially the god Zeus. And it's understood that the Judeans submitted peacefully to Alexander, and he allowed them to continue the same privileges that were given to them by their Persian conquerors, you know, centuries before by, by Cyrus. But let's take a step back for a minute, and let's go back and look at um, Alexander's dad. Now, should Philip II of Macedon be credited for more than you know, Alexander's great successes? Yes, Philip set Alexander up for success. You could almost say that he forced Alexander into, into conquests. But without Philip, Alexander might have been the king of the backwater state who was just like any other monarch in history. So just a bullet point, just some of the things that we want to consider about um, Philip II. And this is, and this is probably where Philip II did most for his son. He instituted the Macedonian phalanx and reformed the entire military. He's an incredible military general, military ruler. Military services was made as a full-time occupation rather than just pulling you off the fields or whatever to come fight. It was a full-time job. Men could be drilled regularly, practice. They became disciplined. And this increased cohesion among the units. You could probably see how Alexander would have had some trouble leading an army of, you know, to India if soldiers, you know, and his troops were on, you know, just part-time workers. It, it wouldn't work. The training wasn't there. The discipline wasn't there. And he gave the Macedonian phalanx lighter shields and longer spears. This was very innovative in terms of fighting. And Philip also made independent unit types. For example, this, this, uh, as a skirmish infantry that he organized, heavily infantry, light cavalry, etc. These could all be used at the ad advantages to mutually aid each other in battle. And many of these new units were used by Alexander. And Philip enlarged the army to conquer Greece. He had to. He had to use it very decisively in his conquest. When he was ultimately assassinated, the state was running low on money. He was running low on funds and capital. It could hardly afford to keep up such a large standing army of full-time employees. This left Alexander only two choices. Disbanding it or to conquest it. And it's pretty clear what he chose, right? Now let's talk about the state. When Philip took over Macedonia, it was in a weak condition. The state was regarded by the Greeks as barbarians, and the Persians as a weak state. They could pass through at any time to conquer Greece, yet Philip changed that. Philip conquered Greece. He saw how weak it was after the, uh, after the Peloponnesian War. I know I mispronounced that. <laughs> but with decisive strategy and skillful diplomacy, he began the hegemon of the Hellenic League. Where am I getting done here? But Philip gave Alexander his first victory. Alexander led a decisive cavalry charge between the Greek line, and many said, said, that, said that he won the battle. Alexander always felt his father denied him the credit he deserved 
by giving him such important command. Philip had opened the door for Alexander to win such glory. So I just think in conclusion, I think Philip II of Macedon deserves way more credit than he's ever been given throughout history. He is responsible for the military his son had when he took the throne eventually. Alexander started with veterans from other campaigns and a large army at hand. Alexander had to conquer parts of Persia or face bankruptcy. Philip gave Alexander a large state of the inheritance himself and his campaigns to secure the conquest won his son more glory. The great. He taught his son some things that would be paramount in his future and made sure to, to hire the best tutor for him. Aristotle. Philip II was an extremely successful monarch in his own right as well, and he deserves more credit for raising the son that would secure his legacy and eventually outshine him. Also, you don't know what really annoys what really annoys me here is that when Alexander conquered Egypt, he partially believed that he was the son of, of Zeus. <laughs> he thought he was the son of a god. I mean, how egotistical and ungrateful to this, to his real father, Philip. You can guess how Philip's army felt when the person who built them up and, you know, was your original commander was also dishonored. So, centuries after Alexander's death, when he became the great, you know, with the, you know, quotations overhead, the Jews sought to associate themselves with Alexander and his greatness. In fact, Judea and Jerusalem both began to take on many Hellenistic traditions handed down from the Alexandrian Empire. Hellenism is the understanding of Greek philosophy and accepting the Greek gods and practices and traditions. But perhaps the best known of these traditions is actually told in one of Daniel's visions. It's told in the Bible. Matter of fact, Daniel 8, um, verses 1 through 27. Opening up your Bibles. In this passage, Daniel is shown a vision that involves a ram and a he-goat. The passage explicitly identifies the ram, which has two horns, with the king of Media and Persia. Hence the two horns, Darius. The he-goat coming from the west is Alexander the Great, who conquers the ram. In other words, Alexander conquers the Persian Empire. And Daniel's vision relates to the coming end of days, embedding Alexander in the Jewish eschatology, or eschatological thought, if you would. Although there are some debatable connections between Alexander the Great and even the mythical Jesus Christ, although many biblical heroes will take on traits from actual people called typology, which we've discussed before and will continue to uh, talk about as it is a theme in um, um, bibliography, but it was very common to trace a hero's life such as Romulus back to his birth and, you know, usually to that of a god, and his was Hercules. In Jewish tradition, there was belief that Alexander the Great would start the last and the final battle before the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, would come as seen in Daniel's end of days vision. And it's important to understand that most cultures around the Mediterranean and the Middle East were all waiting for the world to come to an end. This is a very popular theme. Much of this was maybe perhaps some Gnostic in thinking, and we'll address a little bit more what Gnosticism was. Um, but in short, 
Even Jews believed that the world was soon coming to an end because of all the pain and perhaps the suffering they endured for centuries. And at that point, you know, was living in preparation for the perfect world made for them in the heavenly kingdom. And in fact, you'll see this in just about every culture, especially in the Egyptian mythology. There would be some thought to early Gnosticism here, but that, that the world was actually created on an accident or perhaps by a lesser god, and that the goal was to find knowledge enough to be able to leave this horrible world, this horrible place of illness and disease, and return to the real home, the home that we've always dreamt about that was waiting for us in heaven. This was a huge idea that was, in, and it came naturally, I would believe. And as for the backdating topic, this is evident in the Danielists, the writers of the book of Daniel. There were a few um, that were probably expanded over a, a couple of centuries and, you know, ultimately ended somewhere around um, definitely like the 140s, perhaps 130s of the common era. I mean, I'm sorry, before the common era. But there could have been, you know, there could have been several contributors to this book along with ultimate editors before being ultimately compiled, as we saw in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then even more so all the way up into the uh, 13th century with our oldest version of the Old Testament. But considering how influenced the Jews were by the Alexandrian period, we can see that it was wholly written post-Maccabean revolt. So I think this next part is going to be super important that we're going to talk about as in golf terms. It's going to t kind of tee it up a little bit to where we're really going and um, which is really going to help you understand that second, second temple Judaism. So after being conquered by the demon king, Alexander the Great in 332 BCE, Palestine actually became a part of the Hellenistic kingdom of Ptolemaic Egypt. And the policy of which was to permit some of these Jews, you know, a consider considerable amount of cultural and religious freedoms, if you would. So things are okay. The Jews are accepting, you know, these Greek philosophies and ideologies. And then in 198 BCE, Palestine was conquered by none of the other than King Antiochus III, who reigned from 223 all the way to 187 BCE of the Syrian Seleucid dynasty. And even continues on that the Jews were still treated even, even more liberally, being granted a charter to govern themselves by their own constitution, namely by that of the Torah, of course. But Greek influence, however, was already widely apparent among Jews. In fact, some of the 29 Greek cities of Palestine attained a high level, high level of Hellenistic culture. So by the mid-3rd century BCE, we have an ancient document that we can look at, and it's called the, the Zenon uh, Papyri. So it basically contains a correspondence of the business manager of a high Ptolemaic official that will present a picture to us of an extremely wealthy Jew. His name is Tobiah who, through a commercial contact with the Ptolemies, acquired a little bit of a veneer of Hellenism. We could see this. To judge at least from the pagan and religious expressions in his Greek letters. And then we have his son, and especially his grandsons, became ardent Hellenists. So now you kind of see what's going on here. We've got a wealth, a, our wealth very wealthy Jewish families growing up extremely Hellenistic. Very much... It shows you how the exposure to this has taken over through centuries. 
And by the beginning of the second century, the influence of the Hellenistic age in Judea was quite strong. Indeed, it has been argued that if the Seleucids had not forcibly intervened in Jewish affairs, Judean Judaism would have become even more synchronistic than um, Alexandrian Judaism, meaning taking on many features from other religions and practices. The apocryphal writer um, Jesus ben Sirach also bitterly denounced the Hellenizers in Judaism, and this is circa um, like 180 BCE, that he was forced by the authorities to temper his words. So again, let me repeat what I just said there. Jesus ben Sirach, and check him out, denounces the Hellenizers and the Hellenistic culture, and he's basically told by the authorities in Judea, especially in Jerusalem, to shut up, temper your words, you better watch what you're saying. That's telling you something, right? So Hellenism actually began to spread into Judea after Alexander the Great's you know, after he conquered the area in 333 BCE. And then he and his successors established cities throughout the empire to act as the centers of, number one, commerce, and number two, administration. And as we mentioned before, they set up more than 30 Greek cities just, with, just within Judea itself. It is a Hellenized, Hellenized territory, man. The people of Judea, in spite of their historical resistance of you know, accepting outside influences, they began to incorporate certain traits of the Greek ruling class into their own culture. Many Semites found it rather desirable, if not necessary, to speak Greek. In matter of fact, we now have a lot of wealthy Jewish families who sought a Greek education for their young men and women. Universities would, be, would introduce Jewish students to Greek mythology, Boom! What are you going to do with that? Sports? Music? The fine arts? Now, the Seleucids, who were the descendants of Seleucus, um, the commander of Alexander's elite guard, if you would, he gained control over the region from the Ptolemies, the descendants of another Alexander's generals in 200 BCE. So, when Antiochus IV, or as he preferred, uh, Epiphanes, that is, um, literally means God manifest, became the Seleucid ruler in 160 BCE, he began Judea's actual nightmare. So I want to back it up just a little bit. Just, just, we need to complete painting this picture here so we can really understand the Second Temple Judaism or Hellenism. So in the early part of the second century before the Common Era, we have Hellenizing Jews who actually take control of the high priesthood of the Jewish temple. They take control of the second temple Judaism. And as a high priest from 175 to 172, we have a wealthy um, Greek Jewish high priest. who is His name is Jason, who establishes Jerusalem as a Greek city, even with the Greek educational um, institution. Institutions, plural. Jewish boys and Jewish girls are going to get a Greek and Hellenistic education during this time. His ouster by an even more extreme Hellenizing faction, which established um, Menelaus, who died in 162 BCE, 
as a high priest occasioned a civil war in which Menelaus was supported by the wealthy aristocrats and Jason by the masses. And then the Syrian king Antiochus, where we talked about him, who initially granted exceptions and even privileges to the Jews, intervened at the request of the Menelaus, uh, Menelaus party. Antiochus' promulgation of decrees against the practice of Judaism led in 167 BCE to the successful revolt of the priest, the high Jewish priest, Mathathias, who died in 166 BCE, and his five sons, the Maccabees. So it has been conjectured in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the War of the Sons of Light against the Sons of Darkness, mirrors the fierceness of this struggle. So what I basically just painted here is the extreme Hellenistic culture of the high priesthood and the second temple was eventually attacked by um, some revolting Jews and one by the name of Mattathias and his, and his sons, um, which is going to be referred to as the Macca Well, they were referred to as the Maccabees, and you'll read it through the Bible called the Maccabean Revolt. So now you're getting a timetable of right around that, those 160s BCE. So now I want to talk about the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmonean dynasty was a ruling dynasty of Judea and the surrounding regions during that classical antiquity. And this is right around that 140 BCE to all the way to 37 BCE. And between that 140 and 116, the dynasty ruled Judea semi-autonomously from the Seleucid Empire, and from roughly 110 BC with the empire disintegrating, Judea finally gained full independence and expanded into neighboring regions of Samaria and Galilee and several other surrounding cities. But the Hasmonean rulers took the Greek title Basilius, and some even modern, some scholars today refer to this period as the independent kingdom of Israel. The kingdom was ultimately conquered by the Roman Republic, and the dynasty was displaced by Herod the Great in 37 CE. So the extreme tactics that were employed by the Hasmoneans in their struggle with the Hellenizing Jews, whose children, in fact, were forcibly circumcised, indicate the inroads that Hellenism had already taken and already made on them. In whole, the chief supporters of the Hellenizers were actually members of the wealthy urban population. While the Maccabees, on the other hand, were supporters, you know, were, they were supported by peasants and the urban masses. If we can kind of make sense of that, right? Some, some, some groups, you know, are becoming very, very wealthy. They got control of the temple. They've got control of the education system. They're in, they're in charge of the laws. And then you have these other people that aren't, you know, making it wealthy and, you know, and they're not feeling like they're, you know, their, their rights are being met. What do they do? You know, they start destroying stuff. You know, they start rioting. That's what, it's what people do. It's what they still do. Nothing's changed. But yet there is evidence that the ruthlessness exhibited by the Hasmoneans towards the Greek cities of Palestine had political rather than cultural origins, and in fact that they were fighting for personal power and wealth, no less you know, than that for the Torah. But indeed, some of these Jews who fought on the side of the Maccabees were in fact, and we know that you know, they were idol worshippers, 
we don't need to go on about that. But in any event, the Maccabees, they soon reached an agreement with Hellenism. Thus, uh, we're going to talk about some of these revoltees or the revolters. We got Jonathan, who died in 143, 142, right around there, BCE. And even according to um, Josephus, you know, he who was right around that 38 to 100 of the Common Era, um, says that he negotiated a treaty of friendship with Sparta, Aristobulus, who um, the first, um, who died in 103 BCE, actually called himself a Philhellene, who is a lover of Hellenism, and Alexander Janius, who was the king of uh, Judah during this time, died of died at 76 BCE, who hired Greek mercenaries and inscribed you know his coins in Greek as well as in Hebrew. Greek influence reached its peak under King Herod I of Judea, who reigned from 37 to 4 BCE, which is when some um, biblical scholars would like to say that um, Jesus was uh, traditionally born. And, um, you know, King Herod actually was very, very Hellenized, who built a Greek theater, an amphitheater, in the, you know, inside of Jerusalem. So, during the Hellenistic period, the priests were both the wealthiest class and the strongest political group among Jews of Jerusalem. And the wealthiest of the priests were members of the Oniad family, including Jason, Jason the high priest of the temple, who held the hereditary office of the high priest until they, you know, were replaced by the Hasmoneans that we talked about before. Now, it's important to know that the temple that they supervised, it also functioned as a bank. Whereas the wealth of the temple, you know, was stored and, and private individuals would also deposit their money. And so from a social and economical point of view, therefore, Josephus is justified in calling the government of Judea a theocracy. So now I want to take a second because I think it's important to really talk about this temple because I think now that picture that I've been trying to paint is becoming loud and clear now at this point, right? So I think now you have to start understanding. So monotheism versus polytheism and the, and the political powers. So now at this point, we've got a polytheistic, you know, temple slash bank, the place that we keep all the gold, all the treasures. And this place is, so it, if these scholars, if these believers are, you know, envisioning this, this, this second temple that's being built, as, well, this is where all the Jews would go to worship Yahweh, and it, it is the temple to worship him. You know, King Solomon's temple. Well, I'm sorry, but you're absolutely wrong. I mean, there is a very small window that the Yahweh's cult actually got some respect, you know, of, of, of controlling that temple. And it may have been for about 150, maybe 160 years or so. And it would be from that, maybe from that 516 period all the way up to maybe, maybe the 400s, maybe going as far, far as that 350 BCE. But even then, even when Cyrus allowed them and even helped them build the temple financially, do you think that the Persians just went ahead and let these, let this political group of Jews go ahead and have a hundred percent control of the temple? No, it was also it was also an administration building. It was also a bank, and it was where the taxes were collected to pay the Persians what they were owed. 
that was the only that was the law that was the rule for them to have their autonomy if you would so now that we're painting this picture now that we're getting into the 300s you know going all the way into the 100s first century bce you see uh, the powerful political monster that it has become and you've got political factions that aren't in agreement with it and a lot of these political factions these separatists and you can see that they are in opposition to the temple and to the wealth you know the the the, the, the wealthy jews that are in control of the temple and these wealthy jews are in love with this greek political system you get it? And they're forcing it down their throats through the education system in Jerusalem itself. So I think I'm painting the picture pretty clear, right? I, I think that we get it. So a special group of scribes known as Hasidim or Pretists, um, who, who would become the forerunner of the Pharisees, which I'm sure you're well aware of, you heard about them at least throughout the Bible. But these Pharisees also go by another title that has been given to them, Separatists, right? middle-class Jewish scholars who reinterpreted the Torah and the prophetic writings to meet the needs of the time. So this Hasidim joined with the uh, Hasmoneans in the struggle against the Hellenizers, though on religious rather than on political grounds. So the Hasmonean dynasty, you know, it was established underneath the leadership of a Simon Thassi, who is a name I want you to remember because we're going to kind of talk about this guy in a couple more episodes. But, you know, so this guy, Simon, is the leader of the revolt, you know, the revolt of the, um, you know, the underclass, the, 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 the oppressed. And they're, you know, they're rebelling against the temple that's heavily Hellenized by the wealthy Jews who are denying the underclass the rights of the Torah, you know, the Mishnah law. And, you know, being, you know, having these um, Hellenistic values being forced into their, you know, into their culture. So this is also recorded in 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees in the Old Testament in some versions. And it's also mentioned by Josephus, the historian. But at this point, Antiochus, you know, we talked about him. He started to move to assert strict control over the Seleucid province of Syria and Phoenicia after the successful invasion of Ptolemaic Egypt. And it was turned back by the intervention of the Roman Republic. So in return, he goes and he sacks Jerusalem. He sacks its temple. He's pissed. And he starts suppressing the Jewish and, you know, these religious and cultural observances. And he starts imposing Hellenistic practices himself. Then so, so he, where he was initially... Remember, he was initially allowing the Jews of this province to continue doing what they're doing, just pay your taxes, doing what you're doing. But now he's coming back in a vengeance. I'll talk a little bit more about, about why he does this, but the fact is that he's doing it. And the ensuing revolt by the Jews in 167 BCE began a period of Jewish independence, potentiated by the steady collapse of the Seleucid Empire under the attacks from the rising power of the Roman Republic. And... However, the same power vacuum that enabled the Jewish state to be recognized by the Roman Senate in 139 BCE was later exploited by the Romans themselves in 63 BCE. The kingdom was invaded by the Roman Republic and was broken up and set up as a Roman client state. So now it's kind of interesting to look back. You know, there's just been so much, you know, 
different hands taking control of you know Judea and you know the, the surrounding territories. It's interesting to take a look back at it, and you know the lands of the former kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. You know between 722 and 586 BCE. You know, it literally had been occupied and turned by, what, the Assyrians under the god um, Ashur and the, and, the Babel, and the Babylonians underneath the god Marduk and the Achmed Empire and Alexander the Great's, you know, Hellenic Macedonian Empire in 330 BCE. So although Jewish religious practice and culture, you know, it, it, it had an opportunity to persist, you know, in and out, but for the most part, become heavily, heavily Hellenized, but with other factions, you know, trying to support and remain Torah observant and, you know, and basically just denying the temple and kind of ending up in their own camp. But the entire region was heavily, you know, contested between the successor states of Alexander's empire, the Seleucid empire, and the Ptolemaic Egypt during six Syrian wars of the 3rd to the 1st centuries before the Common Era. And after two centuries of peace under the Persians, the Hebrew state found itself once more caught in the middle of a power struggle between the two great empires. The Seleucid state with its capital in Syria to the north and the Ptolemaic state with its capital in Egypt to the south between 319 and 302 BC. Jerusalem changed hands seven times. So I'm going to bring this up to an end, but, you know, I, I think that we can conclude that under Antiochus III, the Seleucids gained control of Palestine from the Ptolemies for the final time, defeating Ptolemy V Epiphanes at the Battle of Panium in 200 BCE. The Seleucid rule over the Jewish parts of the region then resulted in the rise of Hellenistic culture and religious practices. And in addition to the turmoil of war, there arose in Jewish nation um, pro-Seleucid and pro-Ptolemaic parties. And the schism exercised great influence upon the Judaism of the time. It was in Antioch that the Jews first made the acquaintance of Hellenism and of the more corrupt sides of Greek culture. And it was from Antioch that the Judea henceforth was ruled. So, you know, I think there was a lot to take in in this particular episode. But, uh, man, I, thought, I think it's really important. So this was kind of a little high view of just really trying to demonstrate what the Second Temple Judaism really looked like. It looked like a bank. It looked like an administration building. It looked like the place where, you know, where the, where the wealth of the, of the Hellenized, Hellenizing Greek Jews would, you know, keep all of the gold and all the stash and, you know, all of these things. So I think the picture is very, very clear. And then we also see the involvement with this Antiochus, you know, this Syrian king. And um, there's so much more that's going to happen with this guy. I kind of give you a, a little, a little um, you know, helicopter view, a little high view of what he does. But what he does is so much worse. And it's, you know, recorded in many different places, not just in the Bible. So um, actually, the next episode is going to be called Antiochus the Antichrist, just to kind of give you a little bit of color and get you excited for it. But um, anyway, hey, I appreciate you guys listening and following along and sharing. And um, I think at this point, we're going to say peace out and talk to you on the next one.